This podcast is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College takes great pride in its diversity. For more information, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with Nicole J. Phillips. She's an advocate for kindness. Yes, kindness. She's a columnist, author, public speaker, cancer survivor, wife, and mother. She talks about how performing acts of kindness changed her troubled life in dramatic and positive ways. Now, she writes a weekly newspaper column about kindness, blogs, and recently wrote a book called Kindness is Contagious, 100 Stories to Remind You God is Good and So Are Most People. She shares with us her complicated yet inspirational personal story. Take us back uh, to your childhood because I'm interested in how your childhood impacted you as an adult and impacted your interest in, in kindness. But before we get there, let's, let's go back and, and look at your childhood. Uh, talk about it for a while. Well, I think it would be fair to say that I um, lived a lot of my childhood kind of sad. Um, I had a very normal childhood initially. My mom and my dad were married, and I had an older brother and an older sister. And then when I was in third grade, my mom was ready to go back to work. She's a brilliant woman. She speaks French and Spanish and uh, really has a passion for uh, helping people get their GEDs and English as a second language and those sorts of things. So she went back to work at a really, really well-paying job at a prison, a men's prison in Wisconsin where we were living. And my mom fell in love with a prison inmate. So by the time I was in fourth grade, my mom and my dad were divorced and my mom was remarrying this prison inmate. I was actually the flower girl when I was 10 years old in my mom's pris- in prison. In, yes, in the prison chapel. Uh, and every Saturday we would go and we would visit her husband. Uh, my parents shared custody. So on the Saturdays I was with my dad, uh, we would be doing other things. On the Saturdays that I was with my mom, we would go and we would visit her husband in, in the prison. And it's interesting because when we look back as an adult, when we look at some a child going through something like that, we're terrified for that child, right? We yeah, hurt, we right. hurt for that child. But as a child, initially, I thought it was really cool. I mean, I got to go through security systems that now it looks kind of like an airport, but at the time, I I didn't do a whole lot of flying. Those, those <laughs> clanking doors, yeah, the clanking, the, like the, the yeah, automatic doors, the automatic and, yeah. doors. I would walk down a hallway, and these glass doors would slide open. You hear a click, and they'd slide open, and then you'd walk through, and they they would slide shut and click again. And I was probably thirty years old by the time I realized that the clicking was the door <laughs> locking me into the prison. Right. So you know, I. I cannot feel sorry for myself for having gone through that because at the time I thought it was such a cool experience. It was after that when I was in eighth grade and my mom's husband was getting out of prison 
and I watched the disintegration of my mom's own life that I started to feel really abandoned. I felt like she had chosen this man over her daughter um, and her other children. And, um, you know, this man got out of prison and my dad was terrified that because I was about 13 that this man would find me more attractive than my mom and that I would be a victim of sexual abuse. And so in order to not put that theory to the test, my dad and I moved two and a half hours away and basically kind of cut relationships with my mom a little bit during the high school years. So I carried around a lot of resentment for that, a lot of bitterness. Uh, But but mm -hmm. did you know who to target it? against? Was it against your mom? Was it against your dad for taking you uh, away so far or, or both? Or Well, I had a lot of... did you know? Uh, I, I initially blamed my mom and I had a lot of venom toward my mother all the way as a child in, into my adulthood. I carried that venom with me. I, I really didn't have a whole lot of room for forgiveness in my life for a long time with that. But, you know, I also targeted it against myself. I made a lot of self-implosive decisions. And it's really interesting that I could be successful in one realm, be Miss Wisconsin and, you know, a television news anchor and do those sorts of things. And then yet when the cameras were off and no one was looking, I was making about every bad decision, you know, a person could make. So I guess, you know, I, I targeted both my mother and myself, and it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized there's, there are always two sides to every story. And, and my mom, what really helped me find forgiveness with her was was finding out about her, learning about her, getting compassion for her, and finding out that she was a she was a child who was abused in multiple ways and by her own father, and really married my father to get away from her own. And carried that into adulthood and and into some of her actions, obviously. Absolutely. So your reaction to your father, uh, did you have a good interrelationship? I mean, that's a, that's a tough age anyway, you said, around 13. Uh, did you isolate yourself? Uh, could you interact with him? You said you were sad. I was terrified of my father, so I felt um, like the abandonment came from my mom, but I felt like if I wasn't, uh, I felt like one misstep and my father would uh, disown me, and I'd have nothing, and I'd have nobody. And um, I remember when we moved away from my mom and her husband when he was getting out of prison, um, I would I went into my bedroom every night after school and I would just kind of stay there all night. Uh, wake up the next morning, go to school, and then after school come and stay in my room. And when I was in eighth grade, I tried to kill myself. It obviously was not a successful attempt, and you know one would say, well, that's something to be grateful for. But at the time, I kind of felt like I was a failure at that too. I have no idea what it was, but something clicked in my brain and about ninth grade and and just basically after that suicide attempt, I think it was. And and just basically I said to myself, you know what? I'm the one who's in charge of how my life's going to turn out. Clearly the decisions that I make, if I want to have a different life, 
I'm going to have to make some different decisions. I'm going to have to just do it myself. And so that was kind of my message when I was Miss Wisconsin in 1997. I went around the state of Wisconsin. It was a full-time job, and I talked to kids all the time. And I said, no matter where you came from, no matter what happened to you, no matter who did what to you when, from here on out, you have the choice to create the life you want to live. And that was beautiful advice, and it worked so well for me. But what I didn't know at such a young age was that that's only half of the advice. Because if you are only living with your next right step, your next best step in mind, and you're not looking at other people, you're still so introspective that things like depression, uh, depression was very prevalent in my life, uh, all the way through alcoholism, um, overeating, you know, I had a lot of a lot of issues that I took into my marriage and distrust in my own marriage, things like that. Um, so it wasn't until kindness came on the scene and I that I was finally able to start looking at other people and other people's needs and forgetting about my own. So when you went went to college that that must have been a big step because you were leaving both your mother and your father I I take it Mm -hmm. and and, uh, going I believe to the University of Wisconsin. Yes. Correct. Yep. In Madison. Yep. In Madison. Uh, So is that a point where it was a demarcation in your life where things started to change or or being on your own was that even tougher? Hmm. I don't know. Um let me think about this. I've never had anyone ask that question. I've never looked at it from that from that perspective, from that angle. Sometimes when one goes to college it, it, from a, a, a tough childhood, uh it's liberating. Uh, sometimes it's okay. This is the time to prove myself to myself as well as to everybody else. Sometimes it's so terrifying that 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 one just pulls within, and whatever problems one was having are exacerbated. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole range. Yeah, I don't think that I was terrified by any means. I was ready to go. I was ready to rock and roll. My junior year of college, I lived in France and. Um, I I just wanted to experience everything that college had, sorority life, and um, I was in lots of extracurricular activities and things like that. Um, you know, I look back now and I'm terrified for the kids on this college campus, especially the women who go out and they drink and then their friends leave them and they walk home alone. And I think, by the grace of God, go I, because... I have no idea how I made it home most nights. I have no idea. And so I look back at that and I think obviously there were some red flags that I was not taking good care of myself. But I didn't I would not have put it in a perspective of acting out because of anything that had ever happened to me with my parents. But yet you were so successful. Obviously you did well in college. You mm-hmm. uh, uh, learned your trade well because you came out and became an anchor and a reporter uh, doing your your craft. You you won the 1997 Miss Wisconsin uh, pageant. Uh, those successes, did they help? Yeah, absolutely they helped. I think they helped because if I wouldn't have had those sorts of positive things in my life, it would have really been um, probably – more negativity and and maybe spiraling even down 
further into bad decisions. But I think a lot of people who would be listening to you would say, yeah, maybe I can relate to the fact that there's kind of the public me and the personal me. And, you know, the public me, the good me goes out and does the things I'm supposed to do, even if I feel hungover. The the private me um, is is the one that you have to go to bed with every night and and that looks you in the mirror and says, you know, you're a fraud, right? The public part of you brought the private part along. Yeah, yeah. It dragged the part, private part along. I, yes, for sure. At what point did you say, you know, th- these have to merge mm. or, 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 you know, I can't, I can't go on like this? About seven years ago, I found myself married to my childhood sweetheart. He was a Division I basketball coach. I had three beautiful little babies. And I was miserable, absolutely miserable, depressed. So my marriage was in jeopardy. My health was in jeopardy. And I knew that I wasn't the type of parent that I wanted to be to those kids. About that time— Because you couldn't give them because all I, of you? Because I couldn't or? give them all of me. I, okay. was, I was too caught up. I mean, I was on the edge of it, what anyone would call an alcoholic. So, I mean, that in itself was really difficult. Um, and really unhealthy for them because I just didn't have the energy or the wherewithal to give them what I needed to give them. But it was about that time that um, the newspaper publisher in our town called me and said, we're starting a women's section. Now, he knew me as a TV anchor. So he, he knew my public self. Sure. He didn't know the private self. And so he said, um, would you be willing to write about politics for this new newspaper section? And I said, no way. <laughs> I hate politics. <laughs> and he said, okay, how about cooking? And I said, well, I've made lasagna twice and both times forgotten to put in lasagna noodles. So it wasn't good. And, and so then he said, how about parenting? And I said, absolutely. I will write about parenting once I figure out how to do it. And he he basically threw his hands up in the air and said, when you figure out what you want to write about, call me. And it was right after that that I had an experience with a girl in a shiny gold bikini at a community pool. And it was that experience that this exhilaration I had from randomly giving this woman, this young mom, some money. And I left there feeling so empowered and exhilarated and on this high, like, Nothing I could have gotten from any any substance that I had ever tried. And I thought if everyone knew what this felt like, they would all want to do it. Kindness would be contagious. And I went home that night after the experience with this girl, and I wrote up my first column, and I, I sent it to the publisher. I said, this is what I want to write about. I want to write about kindness. And he said, okay. And every week after that, For the last six years, I've written about kindness. Now, we go back to the original question, which was, when did those two gel? So here I am writing this kindness column, going to the grocery store, having people say, oh, you know, I love your columns. Can I tell you about a story? And, oh, you're so kind. And I thought to myself, what would Nicole do when I was in a situation? And I'm looking at these people thinking, you got to be kidding me. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just, you know, stumbling along. And, And... in the back of my head is this big word, you know, this big flashing neon sign, fraud. And I thought, I can extend kindness to anybody who crosses my path except for the one woman who needs it the most. And it wasn't me. You know, it was my mom. I knew that I had to go back there 
I had to find compassion for her. I had to make amends and and learn to really, truly forgive her, not just say I forgive her. And I had to forgive myself for the nastiness that I had carried around and the bitterness I had carried around for her for so long. And that was when everything kind of came full circle. So within the first year of writing those columns, I lost 25 pounds. I quit drinking. I quit smoking. I fell in love with my husband again. And I reconnected with my mom in a really special way and and found compassion for her life. Did reconnecting with your mom allow you to be a better better mom yourself, a better parent? Well, I think it, it, it did because it reminded me to forgive myself and to give myself grace. Being a parent's tough. Being a parent is tough, <laughs> especially tough. when you're tough. You know, I don't know what it's like to be, I, I just now have a teenager coming on the scene, but those moms who are home with little kids and that's who they're talking to all day and that's who they're looking at all day and they constantly want something from you and yet you feel this guilt because you're supposed to be so grateful that you have these healthy babies. That's that's really hard. And, and I went to bed lots of nights praying that God would make me into the parent that those kids deserved. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. From the highly technical information and telecommunication systems to the theoretical communication studies and everything in between, Programs in the college offer students both the fundamentals of communication practice and the tenacity and skills to further advance the field. In addition, the college is home to four centers and institutes that enable students to gain hands-on experience and learn new skills. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. When you were writing the column and you, you I, I take it you, you had a personal evolution Absolutely. O- over, over a period of time mm-hmm. at the same time you were writing the column. Uh, how did that feel? I mean, how did that impact your, your writing? How did that impact what you were telling others? I had a mentor who worked with me when I first started uh, writing these kindness columns. And and she and I were working together on a project, a, a nonprofit organization for women that she had started, and I was helping her with it. So she kind of, kind of somehow stumbled into being my mentor. I remember writing a column, and I thought it was so good, and I, and I, and I handed it to her and I said, hey, would you take a look at this and read this and, and let me know? Because I was just super proud and pretty positive. She was going <laughs> to love it. And she, and she read it and, and she came back and she set it down in front of me and she said, huh, yeah, you gave them a story, but you didn't give them your heart. And I thought, oh, my gosh, she's right. Like, I have to give Anybody who's willing to take the time to read my words, a piece of me. I have to give them something so that they know that it's okay to be vulnerable too. 
And so that really changed my writing because it no longer just became people submitting stories and me putting a cute little spin on them and sending them back out into the world. It was a matter of of saying, you know what, if we're not going to talk about something real, let's not talk. If we're not going to be authentic with each other, then let's not even interact because it's a waste of your time and it's a waste of my time. All of these columns, or not all of them, a hundred of them, are in a book that Nicole has written, Kindness is Contagious, A Hundred Stories to Remind You, God is Good, and So Are Most People. Uh, when did you decide to compile these? So when I saw that that evolution happen in my life, when I saw that transformation happen within the first year, I knew that kindness had real teeth, and that if people could read those stories back to back, one a day or whatever, and if it would inspire them to every day go out and intentionally be kind, more than just reading them once a week in a newspaper column, I really knew that kindness would transform their lives like it would transform, the head transformed mine. And so I, I got this passion for writing this book. I started writing it when we lived in Fargo, which was uh, in 2000. 13. In 2014, my husband got the job here uh, in Athens as the Ohio University men's basketball coach. So in 2014, we moved. In 2015, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. In 2016, uh, I did breast reconstruction uh, after the mastectomy. So I started it. I put it on hold. I worked on it. I put it on hold. I edited it. I pulled it on hold. And I kept doing it. And it was just last November, November of 2016, that I finally said, okay, you know what? It is now or never. It has just got to happen because I still absolutely, especially since the breast cancer diagnosis, believe in the power of kindness to transform a life. Okay. And I want to talk to about that in a minute. But let's go back for the period when you said, okay, I'm in trouble and I've got to change my life. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, you're writing the columns. And I, I, I use this word advisedly because it may not be appropriate. But how did the column writing affect your recovery? I think I never knew that I was a writer. I would write stories for for broadcast, you know, quick reporter stories. And we always think, well, th that's not writing. That's <laughs> Yeah, you just do it and it's done. Put it together and it's done. That's right. Yeah. It's kind of a formula. Uh, and so when I was able to sit down and really put my heart down on paper with these stories of kindness, really focusing intentionally on that, um, it kept me grounded and I still find, I, all through the breast cancer diagnosis, I, I blogged almost every day about that because it, there were times, let me just put it this way, there were times that Saul, my husband, would say to me, how are you feeling today? And I'd say, I don't know yet. Let me go write and I'll come back and tell you. Because there were things that I had to process on my own that I could do in my chair in front of my computer that I couldn't process verbally yet. And I still feel that way a lot of times with my with these kindness columns that I'll sit down and I'll start to write and I'll again you leave a little piece of your heart there. But somehow as I'm 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 working to leave a little piece of my heart there just talking even about kindness it, it's almost like medicine for me. It's it's therapy for me. 
So when you were diagnosed with cancer, that was in 2015, I believe, right? That's right. In May of 2015. You were here in Athens Mm -hmm. at, at the time. You had to think at some point, oh, my gosh. Yeah, I've I've quit drinking. I've quit smoking. I've lost weight. My depression's under control. I'm a better wife. I'm a better mother. Uh, Now this, you had to feel almost like Job in a way. Did you not? I did not. You did not. I did not. And here's why. I never thought that because I remember so specifically Right after we had done all of the tests, before the results came back, I was in my living room. I was on my hands and knees. I was picking up toys and and setting them off to the side. And I heard a voice. It was very clear to my heart. An internal voice said to me, Nick, it is cancer. Those tests are going to come back positive. I need you to walk this path to show other women that I'm with them during times of trouble. And I thought, huh, okay, all right. So I have a purpose. Now, the interesting thing was I I hear this voice. It is cancer. I need you to walk this to show other women I am with them in times of trouble. I go to my computer. I get an email that says, these are the results of your test. Uh, Not cancer. And I thought, hmm. Well, no, that's interesting because, <laughs> huh, because 30 seconds ago, I just heard this voice and I know it's cancer. So what, I, I'm reading them, I'm rereading them, I'm rereading these test results. Nope, no cancer. And then about two hours later, I got a call from my doctor and she said, are you home? Um, are you alone? Are, and I said, I said, okay, wh- what is it? And she said, well, I have the results. And I said, yeah, I know I, they were emailed to me. And she said, well, uh... I don't, I don't think they were. She said, uh, it's, it's cancer. And so we talked a little bit more. I went back and I looked at the other email. And the other email showed me the results of the test in my right breast. The left breast had cancer. So, you know, it was kind of like I threw my, I, I was like, I knew it. I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not The voice was right. <laughs> the voice was right. Yes. Yeah. I like to be right. So. <laughs> so you just moved to Athens, Ohio. You're, you're in a high visibility position as wife of a basketball coach in a relatively small town. He's... Busy as all get out uh, because uh, first year head coach any place he's mm-hmm. got to know the team he's doing recruiting he's doing more than he usually does right and which is tremendous but he's doing more even than he usually does did you feel alone did you feel overwhelmed I mean you've got little children you've got new schools you've got a new home you've got an absent husband you've you. you so pain and joy always exist simultaneously. This, that is what I discovered, always. So you have the pain of cancer, but there's always a silver lining. Our marriage has never been stronger than during the time that I had cancer. He, I never would have predicted the, the way that he could have um, 
set other things aside, delegated other things with his assistants and the rest of his team and just been there for me. So he was there for that. But the other thing was that, you know, we moved here in April of 2014. I was diagnosed in May of 2015. I had one year. One year. And in that year, I had somehow created this bond, this tribe of women who are phenomenal. They are phenomenal. And they... um, they went with me to sometimes I'd have, you know, three, four, five friends with me at the James Cancer Center in Columbus. And we'd go out for lunch and maybe we'd go shopping. And it was just it was fun. There was great joy in the midst of talking about, you know, taking off a breast or how we're going to recreate this breast or or all of that. So it, I even, you know, had two of those girlfriends that I because I was new and because Saul was busy and frankly, I didn't want his clumpy man hands touching the the delicate tubes that were going to be coming out of me after that mastectomy, I asked two of my friends, I said, you know, we would like to hire an in-home nurse, somebody who could come every morning and every night for two weeks until I can get these drains out. And Saul's really squeamish and he can't do it. And I, you know, I don't trust him and (laughs) (laughs) all of those things. So I said, hey, can you get me some names? And um, they called me back and said, we want to do it. And I said, what do you mean you want to do it? And they said, we're going to take turns every morning, every night. We will be there. And we will, they call it stripping the drains where they, they right. clean everything out. And um, and they did. They showed up like clockwork. And I felt so guilty for agreeing. Putting them through yes, it, right? for putting them through it and agreeing to let them give me this great gift of kindness. But the fact was, that was another lesson I learned about kindness, which is that you know, the real benefits of kindness are for the giver. So, yes, I benefited from my girlfriends doing that. I benefited tremendously. But they will tell me today, oh, we miss that. We miss coming over every morning and and seeing you and being with you. And because they, again, they felt a sense of purpose and and they loved that I allowed them to help. So let's not paint a picture that all is rosy while nope. one has cancer. Uh, uh, it's it's a difficult time in many respects, emotionally, yep. psychologically, spiritually, uh, uh, physically, obviously. But talk about the interplay between kindness and your cancer. Mm-hmm. And b- because you had to have doubts. Some days you had to just – I mean, there are dark days. You just Absolutely. go, this is overwhelming. Yep. I can't do this. And I would say most days I handled cancer really well. I was very proud of myself. Most days. But there were those days when I would wake up with this cloud hanging over my head and I was just depressed and I was scared and I was thinking – you know, I, I even picked out Saul's new wife – I called a girlfriend of mine in Fargo, North Dakota. I said, if I die, I want you to move here and and raise my children. (laughs) She was like, that's morbid. Thank you for that. I'm like, I'm very serious right now. So um, for me, the depression and the darkness looked a lot like irritability and anger. And I would kind of take it out on those who were closest to me, which, of course, is my husband and my children. 
And um, because you know they they won't abandon you. I know they won't abandon me. They <laughs> They'll can be there. That's right. They that's can't. Right. They can't run fast enough to get away from me. So on those days, I used kindness as chemotherapy. It was very intentional. On those days when I was so depressed, when I really felt like I didn't have the energy to do anything, those were the days when I made myself do something. For example, I would go. I went to the gas station on one of those days and I bought a two liter of soda for my neighbor just because I know that she likes Mountain Dew. You know, it was uh-huh. it was just nothing. It was a nothingness. Um, but it was the act of doing it. But it was and the act of getting out of yourself. That's right. To allow you to do it. Is that right? That's exactly right. To to remember there are people who are struggling with their own issues. There was one morning that I woke up, it was four in the morning, and it was lightning, thunder, it was horrible. And I was thinking immediately about cancer, because that's, of course, the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning. And then I I kind of laying there trying to doze off again, and I started thinking about um, a friend who lived down the street. She lived in in a tent on my neighbor's lawn. She was homeless. She was a recovering addict, and um, she had gotten a job across town that started at 6 o'clock in the morning. So she left her house at 4, and she would walk so that she could be there by 6 across wow. across Athens. Thunderstorm, right. any weather. Yeah. So I thought to myself, gosh, you know, I should – I wish – I wish that there was something I could do for her, but I don't have any extra resources right now to give. I've got nothing left to give. How can I possibly help her? I can't even help myself. And um, later that day in the afternoon, I'm still all day just feeling owly, just grumbly. And I saw her walking down the road coming back home after work, and I pulled over the minivan, rolled down the window. I said, hey, do you need a ride uh, back home? And she said, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. And I said, uh, are you still walking every morning to work? And she goes, yeah, but I'm saving up for a bike. And by this weekend, I'll have enough money for a bike. And I said, do you need a bike? I have a bike in my garage. Come on up. When you get home, come and look at it and see if you like it. So, you know, a few hours later, she comes walking up my driveway and and I pull out the bike and I show her and she goes, says, yeah, this this would be super great. Thank you so much for letting me borrow it. And, you know, as soon as I save up enough money, I'll, I'll bring it back. And I said, no, 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 no. I don't want the bike back. This is a gift. Take the bike. And she started to cry. And this is a very tough, tough <laughs> lady. I mean, yeah. very tough. And she looked at me and she in tears in her eyes and she said, why would you do this for me? Nobody ever does anything like this for me. And I said, you know, I bet you sometimes you feel invisible. And I bet you every day you want to go back to the lifestyle you had because it would be easier. I said, and I'm sure it feels like nobody sees you and nobody cares. But I just I want you to know that I see you and I care and I'm proud of you for whatever that means. And and then she's crying and I'm crying and we're hugging and it's this beautiful moment. But in that moment, as she rode the bike away, I thought to myself, oh, I totally forgot I have cancer. My mind 
my eyes were off of me and they were on to somebody else. And that growliness totally Gone. transformed. Gone. Yeah. I was in the best mood ever because I had this great adrenaline high. It's a guy in the 1990s named Alan Lux did this research and he came up with a term called the helper's high. And um, it's that idea that when you do an act of kindness, you do it in such a way that you get out of your comfort zone so that you, your adrenaline starts running, your body starts releasing endorphins and serotonin, and, and all of a sudden you get this high. And um, that's when all of you know, the chemical benefits of kindness come into play. But it's so easy to write a check to the food bank and they need those resources. Those are important checks to write. But sometimes for our own sake, instead of just writing the check, we need to go to the grocery store. We need to buy the food. We need to go to the community center and we need to prepare the meal. We need to sit down with the people who are eating the meal and let them know that, that we care. One last thing, and that is whenever – my experience in my family, whenever someone has cancer and uh, it takes care of it, mm-hmm. it, it's still always there. Mm-hmm. Uh, every checkup, uh, every blood test, every time you get the sniffles or, or the flu or just feel a little blah, mm-hmm. it's there. Mm-hmm. How do you use kindness in those times? It's always there, Tom. It's there for me, and it's there for my kids, and it's there for my husband. And it reminds us that we're fragile, and that's kind of a gift, to be able to be reminded that you're fragile, reminded that your time here is finite, and that you have to not worry about the little stuff and be more in tune with each other and the big stuff. And my daughter, Jordan, um, continues now, two years later, she's raised 16000 what did she tell me, $16,741 for breast cancer research that's going to southeastern Ohio to help women with early detection and to, for gas money to get to their appointments and things like that. Because part of all of our recovery is continuing to give back to that community that gave so much to us when we walked through it. Because you can sit in fear and allow yourself to be paralyzed by that, or you can act out in kindness and remember that you know we're all here to support each other. So kindness is an antidote to depression, and it Absolutely. is also a, a salve for fear on occasion. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I want to remind everybody, the book is Kindness is Contagious, 100 Stories to Remind You God is Good, and So Are Most People by Nicole J. Phillips. Today, we've talked with kindness advocate, author, and speaker Nicole J. Phillips about how performing acts of kindness changed her life in positive ways. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. 
We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through Apple Podcasts. If you have questions or comments about our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. 